about the duties that we have towards one another as we magnify, we glorify, uh, the, and adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. In verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then he tells us what accords with sound doctrine, the behavior within the body that accords with sound doctrine. And now he tells us in verse 11 to 15 what this sound doctrine fundamentally is. And he says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, Titus. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray. Father God, we come to one of those passages that's not more inspired than any other passage, but a passage that uniquely lays out what the gospel is and what the gospel does in the life of the church. Give us ears to hear this morning. We pray that you would take this weak preacher and empower him to preach this text according to the intention which it was inspired some 2,000 years ago and was intended to be preached providentially at Fisherville Church in November of 2015. Give us ears to hear, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Glenn Keane may not be familiar with you, uh, to you, but his works very well may be. He's one of the animators at Disney. And one of his projects was he was in charge of the animation in the movie Beauty and the Beast. In fact, he was the one who, who kind of scripted out, sketched out the, the frames of the transformation that the, the beast had as he was transformed into the prince. And when Glenn was sketching out those frames, he had a Bible verse that was taped on top of his desk. And that verse was 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, uh, he is a new creation. Behold, all things, the old things have passed away. All things have become new. And at this in-house meeting that he had, just before the release of the movie, he, he shared about what was his inspiration as he was sketching out those frames. He said his inspiration was the transformation that is brought about when the grace of Jesus Christ comes to bear on a sinner and makes this sinner new. It's the story of stories. It's the story of transformation. Transformation that God does for sinners in Jesus Christ. It's the great rescue story of the ages. In a very real sense, it's the greatest story ever told. And that story is the hope 
of the world. It's the only hope of the world. As God's saving grace comes to bear on brokenness and on fallenness and on sin and wickedness, He makes all things new. He makes the sad things come untrue. He fixes the broken things. Sinners are regenerated. Sinners are resurrected. Lives are reconciled to God. Churches are revived. Marriages are renewed. All of God is is regenerated and renewed. Human flourishing is recovered. And perhaps there is no text in all of Scripture that conveys that more clearly than Titus 2, verses 11 to 15. And our text gives us two truths about this transforming grace. And the first truth is this. God's grace in Jesus Christ produces new life. God's grace in Jesus Christ produces new life. Look with me in verse 11. He says, For the grace of God has appeared. Now again, a Bible study note here. You need to notice that word for. That tells us he is continuing his thought from verses 2 to 10. We saw this last week, didn't we? In 2 to 10 last week, he spoke to the older men. And he said, older men, here's how you adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in your life. He says, you are to be sober-minded, dignified, and self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and steadfastness. He says, older women, this is how you are to adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in your life. You are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or addicted to wine. You're to teach what is good. You are to train the young women. You have a responsibility to young women. No one is off the hook there. Every older woman in the church has that responsibility. The younger women are to be taught to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive, so that the Word of God will not be reviled. Younger men, you are to live lives of self-control. Spiritual leaders, you're to show yourself in all respects to be models of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech. And even the servants, the bond servants, the slaves have a responsibility to magnify the worth of God. You're to be submissive to your own masters. So there he speaks to the most difficult of all relationships. And he says, even in the most broken of relationships, a slave to his master, you can glorify God. But how can that be? Well, it can't be naturally. Naturally, we revolt against everything the Apostle Paul has laid out in verses 2 to 10. We don't think that way because we're fallen. We don't think that way because we're sinners. That's why we need a rescue. We need God to rescue us. And that's exactly what Paul is laying out here when he says, for the grace of God has appeared. And again, if you look back in verse 1, he has said, teach what accords with sound doctrine. He tells us what accords with sound doctrine. This is what accords with sound doctrine with regard to behavior in the church. And now he's going to tell us what this sound doctrine is grounded in. It's grounded in the grace of God. Sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. 1 Timothy 1 verse 11. 
And note, all of this can be summarized by the word grace. Grace appearing. That word appeared is the word epiphane. It's where we get the word epiphany. Okay? This is the great epiphany of the ages. The word was used in classical Greek to refer to dawn or daybreak. So you can envision it. Uh, It's pitch dark. It looks complete. It's utter darkness. You can't see a thing with with the eye. And all of a sudden, the sun breaks through the darkness. The sun breaks through the darkness and the sun appears. And so what he is telling us here, there is no darkness that is too dark for the daybreak of grace. Some of you are here this morning and you just perceive your situation is too dark. It's too hopeless. It's too broken, messed up. And this word gives us all the hope in the word, in the world. Grace has appeared. In fact, the darker your situation is, the better we can see the light of grace when it appears. That word appears is used four times in the New Testament to refer to Christ first appearing when he came in human flesh. What did he do in human flesh? He fulfilled all the terms of the law because you and I couldn't. We are by nature idolaters. We, we have other gods before us and uh, we are by nature coveters and everything in between those two commandments. We break the law and we do not love God or the carnal mind is not subject to the law of God nor indeed can be. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are alienated from the life of God, separated from Him because of the ignorance in our hearts due to the hardening of our hearts. That's our state. And the grace of God appears. Uh, the, word, the word there is used four times of His first coming and six times of His second coming. And we see both of those events laid out in this text. Now, some truths are only good news in light of bad news. Okay? Some truths are only good news in light of bad news. I was thinking about that reality when I heard a story this week on uh, Nick Saban. Uh, Nick Saban, the football coach of the University of Alabama. And this journalist named Marty Smith had spent a morning with Nick Saban, and he was just amazed at Nick Saban's focus, his ability to focus. And Nick Saban told him a story about his legendary focus. He said there was a time he was in Youngstown, Ohio, And he was in an establishment with a coaching colleague. And they're in there talking about strategy, plays, uh, personnel, you know. Meanwhile, a man with a mask walks into that establishment and holds up the place. He has a gun. He holds up the person behind the, the register. It's just utter chaos. And Nick Saban and his coaching friends sit there in the corner, continuing their conversation, completely oblivious to what's going on. And as he's telling that story, and as I'm thinking about the fact that some truths are only good news and a lot of bad news, it occurred to me, what if someone had gone up to Nick Saban 
as he's oblivious to the bad news, the danger, and had grabbed Nick Saban by the neck and pulled him into a room to safety. What would Nick Saban's response have been? It wouldn't have ended well. It would have been a bad deal for the person who grabbed Nick Saban by the neck. But if Nick Saban had known what was going on at the register, if he had known that he was in danger and someone grabbed him by the neck and pulled him into a back room, Nick Saban would have fallen at this man's feet or fallen at this rescuer's feet and said, command me. He would have probably given him season tickets to the University of Alabama football. Before we can appreciate divine grace, before we can celebrate the reality that the grace of God has appeared in the person of Jesus Christ, we need to know the bad news. And here it is. You and I were created to image God and to worship Him and to magnify His worth. But our sin, okay, has replaced worship of God with the worship of self. Okay? That's the fundamental reality. It's replaced submission to the living God with self-rule. That's our predicament. It's replaced gratitude with demands for more. It's replaced faith with self-reliance. It, it has replaced vertical joy and vertical contentment in Him with horizontal jealousy and envy and covetousness. That's the human dilemma. And Paul Tripp in his new book, Awe, wonderful book, says this, We demand that others serve our agenda. We curse whatever gets in our way. We hate having to wait. We get upset when we have to go without. We strike back when we think we've been wronged. We live to satisfy our cravings. That's the human dilemma. And when all of self and, and love of self rules, by definition, you cannot help yourself. It's like a person in quicksand. A person in quicksand cannot pull himself up out of that quicksand. And to make matters worse, not only does it violate our capacity to flourish as human beings, we're headed for eternal judgment because of our awe thievery, because of our idolatry unless God intervenes. Unless God intervenes. And that's what we see in this text. Only grace can rescue us. Only grace can save us. Only grace can give us back the awe. The awe that we were created to have in God. God's grace in Christ, notice is bringing salvation for all people. Verse 11. Now this is certainly not meaning every person will be saved. We've seen throughout the 
pastoral epistles, there are people who are under the condemnation of God. No one will be saved unless they receive God's provision in His Son, Jesus Christ. Okay? Because we are by nature enemies of God. Romans 5 makes that clear. He's already spoken, in fact, at the end of chapter 1 about those who are defiled and unbelieving, where nothing is pure, both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So when it says He is bringing salvation to all men, He clearly is referring to the groups that we see in chapter 2, verses 2 to 10. You say... Older man, I can't be sober-minded. I can't be self-controlled unless the grace of God appears. You say, older lady, I want to live my retirement years for myself. I have spent my entire life giving myself away, and now I want to be happy. And I don't want to give my life away to the younger women unless the grace of God comes to bear. You say, young woman, I don't want to love my husband. He doesn't deserve it. I don't want to submit to my husband. Except the grace of God has appeared. You say, younger man, I can't be self-controlled. I live in a world of temptation. There are images and temptations everywhere. But the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has appeared. You say, slave, I'm not going to submit to my master. Slavery is an abomination to God. I can't honor God in this relationship. But the grace of God has appeared. Paul says, grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Now, we need to think about salvation for a moment. We Baptists have one aspect of salvation down. We understand that when you're saved by the grace of God in Jesus Christ... Because Jesus Christ takes the condemnation we deserve, we are saved from God's penalty. And we know that the penalty is death, eternal death, judgment. We deserve that judgment. But one of the things we have not emphasized enough in Southern Baptist life is that salvation is not just some past reality. It's also a present reality. We are being saved, right? We've been saved from the penalty of sin, and one of the evidences we've been saved from the penalty of sin is that we are now progressively being saved from the power of sin. I believe that is the emphasis here. Why? Because I think it's clear from verses 2 to 10. How can these various groups in the church do what Paul tells them to do when it seems so unnatural to them? The grace of God has appeared. And I also think it's clear from verse 12. Look with me in verse 12. He says, it's bringing salvation, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So this is training grace. Okay? So this presupposes belief. Of course, we recognize even our belief is all of grace. Ephesians 2, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. 
He goes on, he says, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So how can this former sinner or this person who is enslaved to sin now do good works? The grace of God trains. The grace of God has you in a training program. He uses the Word of God. He uses providence. He uses people. He uses the church. He uses preaching, discipleship. But the training is there. This is the grace a believer continues to experience upon his or her conversion. Of course, again, presupposes faith. You, you're not just saved because you are a part of some Christian organism or because your parents were Christians or because your grandparents were Christians or because you watch Billy Graham when he comes on television. You're saved through repentance and faith. And once you believe, God puts you in His training program. How does this work? He, the work, grace of God is training us. Well, here's how the grace of God does it, by the Spirit of Christ. Okay? As we behold more and more how desperate our heart condition is. And He's always doing that, by the way. He providentially is placing you in situations and circumstances and relationships to expose your heart, to expose your idols, okay? He's always doing that because He loves you. He's pursuing you. He does not want you to remain in the condition in which you are presently in. Just like a loving father and mother does not allow rebellious child to persist in his or her rebellion, okay? And so what He does, He... As we behold by His grace and His Spirit more and more how desperate our heart condition is and how great His sacrifice was in His Son and how marvelous and sufficient His daily provision is, our hearts are enlarged more and more and made more capable for loving Him. That's how the grace of God trains us. And so here's the pattern. It's the grace pattern. I sense my guilt. Grace comes down and addresses that guilt. And in response, gratitude goes up. Generosity flows out. God is glorified. That is the grace pattern. Guilt, grace, gratitude, generosity, glory. And that's what we saw last week. It's all about His glory. Adorning the doctrine of God our Savior. It's about magnifying His worth. Our capacity to flourish as human beings is bound up with that reality. And when this is happening, guess what's happening? We are experiencing an awe rescue. Where you were formerly in awe of something in the horizontal realm, the created order, now you are being rescued for what you were created to be. One who is in awe of the living God. In the face of His Son, Jesus. Keep in mind, when our hearts are enthralled with the stunning glory, grace, and greatness of God. Okay? When our hearts are enthralled with that reality, I have no need to constantly look to the created order for life. When my heart is bound up in that reality, His greatness, His glory, His sufficiency... I don't have to look horizontally for life, for pleasure, 
for provision, for hope, for comfort. Horizontal awe, that is when we are in awe of something in the created order. Something is ruling our hearts that's not God Himself. Horizontal awe is addicting and it's compulsive and obsessive because the things we're looking for can't be found outside of God Himself. So we keep looking. We keep pursuing. And that's where the addictions and the compulsions and the obsessiveness comes. So how does the grace of God instruct us? Well, in two ways. First, negatively, notice, grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Now, what is ungodliness? It's a word we we hear often, but what is it? Well, in Romans 1.18, Paul tells us, that the wrath of God comes against all ungodliness. And then he lays out what that is. Romans 1.21, For although they knew God as God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful. That's the very definition of ungodliness. It's the failure, the refusal to glorify God as God. It's a lack of gratitude for Him. It's when the glory of God is not honored in your life. It's when the greatness of God is not admired. It's when the beauty of God is not treasured. The presence of God is not prized. The person of God is not loved. It's when the holiness of God is not reverenced. The justice of God is not respected. The wrath of God is not feared. The grace of God is not cherished. The goodness of God is not savored. When the truth of God is not sought, the commandments of God not obeyed, the faithfulness of God not trusted. That's what it means to be ungodly. That's what it means to be ungodly. And the grace of God in Jesus Christ comes to... Instruct us to deny ungodliness and worldly passions. What is worldly passions? It's inordinate desires set on worldly things. That's what worldly passions are. Worldly passions are a sleepiness of the soul. Okay? It's a sleepiness of the soul, a dullness of the soul in which the, the pleasures, the status, the comforts, the cares of this world seem so stunning and alluring and solid and permanent. And the things of God are mere abstractions in our life. Okay? That's what it means to be worldly. It's when the things of God, eternal things, are un, unable to grip the heart. So you come to worship, and you don't worship. You're just here to check the box off. You leave just as dull as when you came. You open up your Bible out of mere rote habit. But it doesn't grip your heart. The Word of God is just an abstraction to you. What really grips your heart is what you see on Netflix. 
or what you see on Facebook or Twitter or sports. And the grace of God has appeared instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldliness. Now, you, you put these two words together, ungodliness and worldliness, and it describes someone with misplaced awe. It describes someone with misplaced identity. And I can tell you this by my own testimony and by the testimony of scriptures more importantly, that all the relational problems and personal issues you have are due to that misplaced awe and identity. Someone or something has become your pseudo-Messiah, pseudo-Savior. And I can promise you that Savior will not deliver on what it promises. There's a word for this. It's idolatry. It's idolatry. Keep in mind, your emotional life is always a window into what your hope and cares and hopes are, are um, pleasures and aspirations, where they can be found. If you have negative emotions, for instance, uh, jealousy, let's just say jealousy or envy, that negative emotion can be traced back to an inordinate desire, okay? A worldly desire, a pseudo-savior, an idol. And it's only when a greater awe, the awe of God in the face of His Son, has captured my heart, will I be liberated from that emotional roller coaster that idolatry actually produces. Idolatry cannot be remedied only by willpower. That's the issue. You can't just determine, I will not be an idolater. I will stop loving these things too much. You can't do that. It's not the way the heart works. Jesus and the grace of Jesus must become more attractive to you than your idol. In other words, it's not simply by resisting the idol, but by rejoicing. You worshiped your way into idolatry, and you must worship your way out. You worship your way into idolatry, and you must worship your way out. And that's what grace does. It gives you new eyes. It melts your heart. It illumines you to God's glory in, your, in the sun. And the response to that reality is gratitude and, and joy. Thanksgiving. This leads to the positive way that the, this grace, rescue, mission evidences itself. Notice the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and positively to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. This word self-controlled, 
We have seen it five times in Titus. You think it's important? I think so. Five times he has he has hit that issue. He says the grace of God instructs us in self-control. What is self-control? It's self-mastery. Because you've been mastered by another. It's discipline towards ultimate things. And self-denial towards those things that compete against ultimate things. That's self-control. It's discipline towards ultimate things. And self-denial towards those things that compete against ultimate things. Secondly, it instructs us to be upright, to live uprightly. So self-control is in relation to myself, uprightly is in my relation to others. And that's the heart of verses 2 to 10, isn't it? I have a responsibility to you and you have a responsibility to me. Richard Lovelace, a great scholar, uh, writes in one of his books of how the pattern of church life um, that was established in the Middle Ages in which the laity became passive observers rather than participants in mutually edifying one another by their gifts. How that kind of set the tone for the church that, that persists today. And he uses this illustration. Imagine a diver. A diver goes into the water and his source of oxygen, okay, it's a self-contained system. His source is above the surface and it comes through this uh, hose. If this diver's hose malfunctions, it doesn't affect any of the other divers. Or if another diver's hose malfunctions, it doesn't affect you as a diver. And he says that is a picture of the way the church functions today. Rampant individualism. But the text indicates to us that grace comes through the Son by the Spirit, but it comes through horizontal channels. In other words, grace uses means, such as preaching, okay? Such as mutually edifying one another by our gifts and by our encouragement and our exhortation and rebuke and love, okay? And so that's why he says you must live uprightly. That is, you must carry out the responsibilities in verses 2 to 10. And you can. Because the grace of God has come to instruct you in that. And so self-discipline is, is my relation to myself. And, and being upright is my relation to you. I have a responsibility to you. If I do not use my gifts to edify you, I'm functioning like the diver, okay, who has this self-contained system that's completely independent of you. And then thirdly, it instructs us to live godly lives in the present age. Again, godliness there simply means reverencing God as God. Living in awe of Him. Esteeming Him above all things. Finding your identity 
your significance, your pleasure, your hopes, your aspirations in Him and Him alone. And he says, that's the reality for the Christian in this present age. What is this present age? This present age began in Genesis 3. Okay? Genesis 3 communicates to us a game changer. God created all things good, and Adam, our representative, went AWOL. He rebelled against God, and sin entered into the world. So starting in Genesis 3, we have this present age. Now, the age to come erupted into this present age through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the hope of the world. It's in the age to come. And that age erupted into this present age through the resurrection. And so for the believer, we live between in the overlap of the ages. We were people of this age, but our hopes are bound up in the age to come. In fact, that brings us to the last point here. Um, The believer's hopes are bound up in a coming consummation. Aren't you looking forward to the day when the Spirit no longer has to expose the idols of your heart? I long for that day. I mourn over my sin. It's not because I'm superior to anyone else. It's because the grace of God has come to bear in my heart. There's coming a day when He's going to consummate everything. And that brings us to the final point. God's grace in Christ produces new life. It also creates new longings. Look in verse 13. Waiting. Waiting. Who's waiting? We're waiting. We're waiting for our blessed hope. Your hope is not in a raise. Your hope is not in your health improving. All of that is transient. The hope is found in a person waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing. There it is. There's that word, epiphane. Waiting for the epiphany, the second return of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Is Jesus Christ God? Paul says He is God. He is our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ is His office. He is the Anointed One. That speaks to the reality that He is from the tribe of David. So in this description of Jesus, we see that the Savior must be both God and man. Why? Because only God can pay the penalty that we owe. It's an infinite penalty. So by definition, only an infinite being can pay the penalty. Only God can pay the penalty we owe, but only man should. And so the Savior must be both God and man. And so we wait for the day He comes to consummate, to finish what He started by His resurrection. Okay? Notice, He came and He... verse. 14, He gave Himself for us. Most beautiful phrase in all the Bible. What is your hope bound up in? It's it's bound up in the fact that Jesus Christ, the God-man, gave Himself for you. He lived the life you could not live. You've never lived that life one moment of your life. 
Not one moment. I haven't lived that life even as I'm preaching in the pulpit today. But he lived the life for you. He loved the Lord his God with his heart, mind, soul, and strength and his neighbor as himself every moment of his life on earth. And then he gave himself as a sacrifice for our sins. He took the wrath you deserve. He propitiated the wrath of God for you. And then he was raised from the grave for us. He gave himself for us. And notice three results. To redeem us from all lawlessness. He purchased not merely our forgiveness. He purchased our holiness. Breaking the power of sin. So that you can actually obey God. So that you can actually adorn the doctrine of God, your Savior. Secondly, he purified for himself a people for his own possession. He purchased us to purify us. So the idea that a person can truly be a convert to Jesus Christ and live a life of lawlessness and rebellion is far into the New Testament. You've brought in an alien theology when you start thinking that way. One of the evidences that I have been saved and I have been united to Christ is my life begins to show it in purity. He died to purify for himself a people for his possession. That's Psalm 2. Ask of me and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance, God says to the Son. You are owned by him. You are a slave to Christ. That's the evidence that you've been purchased. And then thirdly, to make a people who are zealous for good works. Note the motivation there. My goodness. Why you do what you do is as important as what you do. Notice, zeal for good works. Our works are not the precursor for His works. Our works are the response to His works. As I... Behold the glory of God in the face of Christ as I recognize just how sinister my heart is and how wicked my past and present is. And then I am illumined to the reality of what He has done for me and His Son. It melts my heart. Grace always melts the human heart. Just thinking of the human level, there have been people you've had an attitude towards and they did something for you. Okay, you had an attitude towards them or perhaps you were just indifferent to them. And then they did something for you out of the blue because of their grace and kindness to you. And it completely changes. Okay, your disposition to them. You know that. And that's what grace does vertically. When we behold the grace of God in the face of Jesus who came to purchase our freedom, the response is zeal. The response is love and gratitude. The response is awe. That's what grace does. It comes on a grace all rescue. And that's why Paul would end to this preacher Titus with these words. Titus, do you want fruit in your ministry? It's not going to come by being seeker-friendly. Because seekers don't really know what their needs are. And by the way, there are no seekers. Romans 3 says, the only seeker in Scripture is God Himself. 
Okay? There's none who seeks after God. Romans 3. Do you want fruit in your ministry? Titus. Or do you just want to draw a crowd? Okay? So that you can increase your uh, salary. So that you can get pats on the back. No, Titus, do you want fruit in your ministry? Verse 15. Declare these things. Declare these things. Exhort, rebuke, with all authority. Let no one disregard you. That is Paul's word to him. So as we close, here's the question. It's a question I have to ask myself. Are you zealous? Are you zealous? I can't make you zealous, and you can't make you zealous. It's, this, isn't, this isn't football practice where you determine I'm going to come out today and I'm going to work harder and I'm going to bust somebody in the mouth. Okay? That, that, this isn't that. You can't change that. The, zeal is not something you commit to. A lack of zeal is a symptom of a heart that's in need of a grace rescue. Okay? So are you zealous? Here's what you do. You you situate yourself in the crosshairs of the gospel. That's what you do. You can't become what you're not beholding. And you can't behold what you're not looking at. So my admonishment to me and my admonishment to you is to stare at the glory of God until you see it. And of course, we see that. We know that that is is a corporate reality, but it's also an individual reality. Worship is the chief duty as creatures. And worship, we saw last week, is a corporate endeavor, isn't it? It's not just me and Jesus and my cup of coffee. It's a corporate reality. And salvation is our chief blessing as sinners. And so God's grace in Christ produces both. He brings us salvation... And in that, he provokes worship. Worship and salvation. That's the real story of the beauty and the beast. And that's our story. If you believe. Let's pray. Father, it is possible as a Christian to get dull. We've all been there. But thank you that your grace in your Son continues to pursue us because you love us too much to allow us to persist in dullness, in ungodliness, in worldliness. You love us too much to persist in horizontal awe So you come on an awe rescue for us. So for those who are here today who've been born again, who've who've been purchased by the Son, by His blood, we pray your grace would rescue their hearts today from dullness to delight. And for those who've never kissed the Son, as Psalm 2 says, who've never bowed the knee to the Son, we pray today you would save them open their hearts and their eyes to their real condition and the all-sufficient work of the Son of God.
who gave himself to save sinners like us. And we pray that you would draw and save today. Meet us where we are today by that grace. Thank you for this marvelous transforming grace. And we pray this through your son, Jesus. Amen. So we stand and as